Thank you. My name's Karen. I'm an alcoholic. Um, my sobriety date is January 4th, 2018. So I just hit four years earlier this month. Um, I live in Northern California. Um, I am a professional flutist. Um, I'm in the academia and I play, um, I'm a freelance musician throughout the Bay Area. Just to give you a little picture, um, I um, recently went through a divorce um, as a result of my alcoholism. Um, and, and I only realized very recently that there were other things that fed into it too, but I'll get, I'll get into that. Um, just to give you a picture of what my life was like for like the last, um, 10 years or so of my drinking. And I started drinking when I was 15 and didn't get here in, into AA until I was 55. Um, it was a living hell in the very end. Um, I was a chronic binge blackout drinker. Um, I was, I was constantly living in fear of myself. There were many, many days when I woke up and I knew something terrible had happened the night before, like, um, I would, you know, have a broken toe or I knew I had a horrible fight with my husband or a neighbor or someone and I didn't remember why, but I knew I instigated it and then it turned out to be over something absolutely ridiculous. Um, I was very highly functional and I hid my drinking. I had my little hiding spots all over the kitchen, which was my main spot for drinking. And, and the worst of it happened after my family went to bed and I would stay up till 2 a.m. every single night and I would pass out and then I would get up and I'd start the whole thing all over again. Um, I, in those last few years, um, my drinking robbed me of the enjoyment of some really big like family events and big milestones in, in my life and my children's lives. Um, couple of examples. Um, when I was 15 years old, I went to a, a famous music camp in Michigan. Um, and it was very, it was life changing for me. It's called interlock and, and it's where I decided to become a musician. And it was also where I decided that one day, I wanted to run a music camp, which I indeed do, and I have done for the last 28 years. Um, about five years ago, my younger daughter, who was a serious trumpet player at the time, decided to go there for the summer, and I took her there. This was one year before I stopped drinking. And I, um, at that point in my, in my illness, I was beyond the point of actually trying to get drunk all the time. What I was trying to do was not go into withdrawal. That was most of my, my energy was put into striking this balance and way more often than not, I was very unsuccessful. My, my tolerance was so high that one bottle of wine really did nothing. I drank two bottles of wine every single day, at least two bottles of wine for the last three or so years of my drinking. So we went to Interlock and, and this should have been a joyous occasion. It was just the two of us. I, you know, I should have gone back there just absolutely thrilled to return to this place where I hadn't been in 40 years. And I was sick as a dog. I mean, I just, I, I, I've never been, I really think it was one of the top two or three times when I was so sick 
that I just didn't care about anything. I could barely help her get her stuff into her cabin. It was just, it was a nightmare. I mean, it was one scenario after the next like that. Um, <clears throat> so my life was hell. Um, what, what happened was in November, 2017, my husband um, and my older daughter, I have two daughters, one is 22 and one is 20 now, my older daughter, who was 18, and my husband walked out the door and didn't come back. Um, my husband, and I'll get to him more in a minute, but he he is in recovery. He's an alcoholic who got into recovery and I think just hit 30 years. And he's in traditional AA and it's worked very well for him. And I'll, I'll get back to that in a moment. Um, just to give you an idea of my, my bit about my upbringing, um, I grew up on the East Coast. Um, I'm from a Jewish family. My parents were both um, only children from very poor families. They grew up in a Jewish ghetto in Newark, New Jersey. And they were totally self-made. Um, my dad worked his way through a PhD on scholarship. My mom got a degree in education, but she ended up becoming a systems analyst back in the 80s. And this was like when a computer was the size of a room and there were no women in the field at all. Um, so the bar was held very, very high for my siblings and I. And um, I also grew up in Bethesda, Maryland, because my dad became, um, got a job very, very high up in the government. Bethesda is an affluent suburb of Washington. And it's one of these, like, I went to this high school that was like, everybody went to the Ivy League. And I, in fact, I just learned yesterday that a student at that high school died of a fentanyl overdose. And, you know, it struck me, it knocked the wind out of me to hear this. I, um, I attended a funeral two years ago of a college student at the college where I teach who died of the exact same thing. These are cream of the crop college students who are taking this stuff and accidentally killing themselves. And I'm sorry that I'm, I kind of digress, but it really is an epidemic. And it's, and you know, if it had been me, if, if fentanyl had been around when I was in that high school, it very easily could have been me. Um, so money, drugs, and alcohol were very easy to get for us. I hung out with a bunch of, we were not wealthy. We were, you know, my parents did well, well enough to live in that area, but we were not wealthy, but I grew up around real wealth. I mean, if you saw the movie Traffic, those were the kinds of kids that I partied with. They were just spoiled brats. And I always looked way older than I was, and I could go into a liquor store and buy liquor for everybody. Um, and of course, I wanted to be liked by everybody. So, you know, that, that was a really cool little perk I had. Um, and my drinking was absolutely never normal. It started when I was 15. My first drunk was at a party in New York City where my best friend lived, who I met at that music camp in Michigan, took the train up and I got rip roaring drunk and passed out and threw up, which was, seemed to be the story of my life. Um, that was a precursor for what was times to come. Um, and there were whole chunks of periods of time when I didn't drink at all, like during my pregnancies, or when, um, well, there were, there were, there were many examples of like, I'd go a year where it was really, you know, I didn't really drink that much. And I thought, well, I'm really not an alcoholic, you know, then it became absolutely 
you know, very, very obvious to me. I knew a very long time before I got here that I was alcoholic and I just didn't really care. And it was more than not caring. Um, let me fast forward. I, I, my parents, let me talk a bit about, a little bit more about my parents. They were Jewish, but they raised us strictly as, you know, Unitarian agnostics. So we were part of a Unitarian fellowship and they went out of their way to find a fellowship that wasn't a church. Um, and they raised us very much to question everything, think out of the box. They were very anti-organized religion. And I had this hammered into my head from the time I was six years old. Um, <clears throat> in my senior year of college, I met a man who was brilliant. Um, he had just gotten back from a year at uh, the London School of Economics. He was attending Johns Hopkins and we started dating and we moved in together and we got married and we moved to Northern California because he entered into a PhD program out here. Um, <clears throat> very soon after we got here, it became obvious that his, his problem, at, and at that time he was much further along than me, was really a, to, totally out of control and there was no way that that he could continue in that program and he realized he probably wouldn't stay married either so he checked himself into rehab my first exposure to aa was through al-anon which is a good program but i have to say that i could not get my mind around how they kept trying to equate the steps to a codependence situation i just couldn't and of course the whole god thing went like this at the same time my husband who was a voracious reader still is was bringing home i mean his favorite bookstore was the recovery bookstore you know and he would bring home book after book and the program literature that i was picking up and reading i mean i remember the first time i opened up the big book and started reading it i i may as well have been reading beowulf it was like I was transported into this whole other time and place or like reading The Grapes of Wrath, which was what took place in the 1930s, which is when the big book was written. It was just so old, so archaic, and I, it, it, I just couldn't get my mind around it. And I didn't know, um, you know, how my husband was digesting all of this stuff. He was agnostic. Um, he sometimes referred to his higher power and it was obviously working for him. I did not question him about it because it was none of my business and it was working. And I figured if he wanted to talk to me about it, he would talk to me about it. But knowing what was in that, that material kept me out there for a very, very long time. And so when I say I didn't care that I was alcoholic, well, that's not entirely true. Part of it was, I thought the only choice I had was going to traditional AA, so I just didn't do it. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Um, all right, I talked about November 2017. I got into AA, I think about a month later, and like I said, my, my sobriety date was January 4th. I spent the first two years in traditional AA um grinning and bearing it um i had a disastrous experience with a sponsor um my my very first sponsor who i got pretty much immediately because that's what i was told to do 
um, this woman was just ultra controlling and insisted that her sponsees show up at every meeting she went to and sit right next to her like little ducks and oh it was just stifling and and horrible and then when i told her that i wanted out of this arrangement i got stalked for a few months i mean it was just it was like scientology it was absolutely insanity and then i went on to another sponsor who i think is a a very fine person and and it is a good sponsor i know to a lot of people she was sort of the holy grail of sponsors she was one of those people and um she had a terrific sense of humor and she was also from the northeast and we kind of you know related to each other um but the whole god thing didn't work out and and then um after my divorce my daughter my younger daughter who lives with me and let me talk about her for just a second i do have a daughter who stayed with me throughout this our younger daughter um i have just an amazing relationship with her that i know i would not have um if we hadn't been through all of this together she's been through you know i share everything about my program with her um she's in college now on the east coast um and i miss her terribly because i'm alone for the first time in decades um but i know that if i ever have one of those alcoholic moments of insanity where i decide it's okay to pick up a drink i know that 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 relationship is over that i will lose her as well and she is a very big part of the reason I got here and that I stay here. Although the number one reason is myself. I'm, I'm not doing this. First and foremost, I am staying sober for myself. Okay, then the pandemic hit. Um, I want to read a um, piece that I wrote for um, The Grapevine, which some people here have already heard. It's... Um, it really sums up my whole feelings about like why traditional AA didn't work for me and um, they have not printed it as yet and I really doubt they ever will but um, but here it is um, just bear with me a second and I'm gonna read this it's called zoom in the art of secular sobriety maintenance and I wrote this in July of last year try group of drunks they would say or the great outdoors or a doorknob my temporary sponsor my temporary sponsor tried to explain how simple it was if i just keep my mind open to the idea of some sort of higher power always with a capital h and p and its ability to remove my desire to drink the urge would magically disappear and it seemed that it's a non-religious program you can do this always finished out the pep talk so desperate was I, a very sick person who abused alcohol for 40 years, had liver damage, could barely get through a day without vomiting, and lost half of my family to my drinking, that I listened. And I tried. I kept going to meetings and doing what I was told to do. I got in service. I opened my mind. If my mind had become any more open, I would have had to look into supplying it with stadium seating. Yet, I still didn't believe the the god removing my desire to drink thing even though my cravings had evaporated and i no longer felt in the clutches of alcohol after the first few days i just didn't believe that some power from the great beyond was responsible for that and i still don't they repeated work the steps i thought maybe although i had been married to someone in recovery for 27 years and had read the steps many times the steps would explain it and i would finally get the higher power thing 
Step one was a no-brainer. I had absolutely no problem admitting I was powerless over a substance that had nearly destroyed my life. And a bonus, God didn't appear in this step, so I was able to fully embrace it without doing optic gymnastics when I read it, whipping out a thesaurus, or engaging in an endless debate with someone about how to dress up a concept that I couldn't get my mind around so that it finally made sense to me. For this reason, it was easy peasy. Steps two and three, not so much. Steps six and seven may as well have been instructions on how to build a nuclear power plant. I made countless attempts to grasp the language of these steps, and I started feeling like the character Diana Morales in a chorus line, the aspiring actress who failed to understand her coach's commands to feel like an ice cream cone. And the words are, they all felt something, but I felt nothing except the feeling that this bullshit was absurd. Still, terrified of relapse, I plugged forward, and although I struggled with a lot of the language, both written and spoken, I kept returning to continue to try to interpret the steps as a practical design for living, and to hear the underlying message of any AA meeting, don't drink no matter what. I continued hearing story after story that I could relate to, building friendships and sobriety, and started embrace, embracing the basic concept of each step as much as possible if you don't believe in a higher power, I'm sorry, if you don't believe a higher power has reached into your soul and removed your obsession. At the same time, I also started noticing that there were people in meetings who didn't say the Lord's Prayer and who, like me, voiced their skepticism in their shares and the fact that they had avoided AA because of the subject of God. Naturally, we turned to each other to help one another navigate the vernacular of the big book and meetings in which God is mentioned constantly but we were always a tiny minority. And the longer I continued to go to conventional AA meetings, and as everyone suggested, to take what I needed and leave the rest, the harder it became to feel authentic. With the start of practically every traditional AA meeting, we hear they are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty, the clause from How It Works, which refers to people who cannot find their way into the rooms. I started really thinking about that sentence as it applied to me and my program and realized that if I am to be rigorously honest, I was to share my apprehension, which was often not enthusiastically accepted by fellow AA folk. Included in my shares was that yes, I do believe nature is more powerful than I, and that if, for example, I get caught in a riptide, struck by lightning, or attacked by a mountain lion in one of my trail runs, then I am toast. But what did it have to do with lifting my desire to drink? And turn it over? What does that really mean if you don't believe that a greater force is writing code for the inner workings of your psyche? These are critical questions for one who is committed to working a 100% rigorously honest program. And the central role the higher power plays in the thesis of conventional AA made it impossible for me to merely file these questions under leave the rest behind. I needed more answers and I wasn't fully on board with the program. In order to maintain my sobriety, I longed for meetings where my journey in recovery is bolstered by a room full of like-minded alcoholics who are seeking the same answers. Fast forward to March 2020 and a global pandemic. We all scrambled to Zoom and at a head-spinning pace, online AA meetings popped up like whack-a-moles literally overnight. We are not an unresourceful lot. One day, as I peruse an international listing of online AA meetings, the link to a secular AA meeting out of Los Angeles appeared on my screen as if a beacon. The preamble of this meeting spoke to me. 
Though this is a secular meeting, we welcome everyone, including atheists, agnostics, and people of all religious beliefs and backgrounds. Our meeting endeavors to maintain a tradition of free expression, where alcoholics may feel free to express any doubts or disbeliefs they may have, and to share their own personal form of spiritual experience, their search for it, or their rejection of it. Eureka! After 26 months of trying to force a square peg through a round hole, I learned that there were rooms in which I could fly my freak flag and also hear the input of others from across the globe, alcoholics whose backgrounds were not Judeo-Christian, full-on atheists, and people of all stripes who were looking for a secular approach. And many of the pillars of mainstream AA that I found so helpful the comradeship, the traditions, the need to maintain anonymity, the principles, and even the steps, which had been translated to a non-theistic version, were still present, and the underlying requirement to identify with a higher power was gone. At last, I felt I could work a fully uninhibited program. In no way do I intend to demean conventional AA or its members. I am grateful to it and to them for lifting me out of the depths of hell and for providing me with a life raft on which to dry out and become the beneficiary of the support and genuine care that happens in the rooms. Nor do I mean to imply that secular AA is for everyone any more than conventional AA is, or to cultivate any notion of us versus them. The world most certainly already has more than enough of that. All I intend to convey is how happy I am to be sober one more day and not to have to pretend to be an ice cream cone. So that's the piece I wrote. Um, I just want to follow up a little bit on that. Um, I've had a lot of, you know, six months since that um, writing to, re to, first of all, attend meetings, which I do every single day, and I only attend secular meetings. Um, and I have to say, I, I love this community. I find the discussions are just so... Um, you know, not only helpful to my, to my sobriety, but I mean, sometimes I leave meetings feeling like this could have been like a really interesting philosophy class. I mean, I get, and I've made so many friends and have gotten involved in some really exciting projects. And it's just, this is my recovery. This is it. Not trying to be something that I just truly don't believe in. Um, <clears throat> I think I'm going to wrap it up with that. I, you know, so the the stuff that I have realized about traditional AA that I have sort of changed my my stance on since writing that piece is I really take umbrage with the whole notion of um, you know, if you don't believe in God, find a surrogate. You know, find another higher power, which really means believe in God anyway. Um and I won't believe in that either, you know, and these acronyms, the, you know, gift of desperation, and it's all kind of like, you know, I recently sat down and wrote my own version of the steps, and the first step was exactly the same as the original, and the second step was, we realized we couldn't do this alone, and the third step is, found other alcoholics to recover with, you know, um, and, and that's essentially it. Two and three, for me, were you can't do this by yourself, and you got to find somebody to help you. You've got to find, you know, this. And um, so that 
that we are expected to sort of stand on our heads to to you know the fake it till you make it phrase makes me want to throw something at a wall you know especially when it's said right after the rigorous honesty phrase um so anyway i don't really have a topic <laughs> i just kind of I'm going to end it there because otherwise I will talk all night. And um, I just want to say again, thank you so much. It's great to be here and thank you for letting me be of service.